This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. issue for all women hey guys welcome to this week's sunday chops in which you can hear the full chat i had with author ella dove which you will have heard a little snippet of in this week's podzine if you listen to it before i start wanging on about that just want to let you know that we have got our final gig of the year on december the 11th which is at king's place in london and we will be joined by comedian tiffany stevenson and the very brilliant star of episodes Psychoville and Back to Life, Daisy Haggard. It's going to be cracking. And also, as a little early Christmas present to you, we are giving you 50% off tickets to that show. So, if you want to give the gift of lols this Christmas and take a pal with you, technically you could do it for free, and we won't even tell them. So, what you need to do is go to the King's Place website and get yourself a ticket and use the promo code STANDARD50 that's standard like standard issue and the number 50 and it will just give you 50% off any number of tickets you buy so I heartily recommend that you do that anyway back to chops it was World Disability Day on Tuesday so I had a little chat with author and journalist Ella Dove who became an amputee at the age of 25 after an accident which you're about to hear a bit more about. We talked about a bunch of things that we didn't have time to fit into this week's pod scene. We talked about her book Five Steps to Happy which the paperback version of is out on the 26th of December by the way and I recommend you have a little read of it. It's a very lovely heartwarming tale but also it does have a serious side and it did make me reflect on a few things one of the things we talk about in this interview is just like being a bit more patient with people in public spaces and things like that can really make a huge difference and that's to able-bodied people disabled people all sorts of people you know it's an interesting read and well worth it I would say so we talked about a bunch of other things in this interview which I'm not going to bang on about now I'm just going to let you get on with it so enjoy I am sitting in the flat of author and journalist Ella Dove. Hello Ella, how are you today? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk a bit today about hidden disability and disability awareness and your book, 
which is probably a good place to start. It's called Five Steps to Happy and it is a novel. Do you want to tell us a bit about the experience that inspired the book and and what the book's about? Yeah, definitely. Five Steps to Happy is a fiction book which is loosely based on my own personal story, which is that in 2016, I went out jogging with my sister early one morning and on the way home, about five minutes from home, I tripped And when I tripped, I knew something serious had happened, but I didn't realise quite how serious it actually was. I thought I'd broken my leg, but actually by the time an ambulance came um, and I was taken to hospital, my foot was cold and what had happened was I'd dislocated my knee, but also I had a fracture. And the combination of those injuries meant that the blood couldn't get through to my foot, so it severed the circulation to my right foot. So I had several operations. I had three operations to try and restart the blood flow, taking veins from one leg, putting them into the other leg. And three days later, there was a very, very faint pulse in my right foot, but not strong enough for it to kind of be workable. So the fourth operation after three three or four days in intensive care was the amputation of my right leg below the knee. And my book is about a girl that loses her leg. She loses it in exactly the same way I did. However, I want to stress that she's not me and that the plot is entirely fictional. But it's about a girl's amputee kind of recovery journey. In that initial stage, you know, leading up to the amputation, were you aware of any of that? Were you sort of conscious? Were you told this is what's going to happen to you? I was conscious the entire time, actually, yeah. So when I fell, I I think obviously then I was in shock and adrenaline kicks in and that kind of thing. So I kind of don't really know how long I was waiting for an ambulance for. I don't remember the what the guy who called the ambulance looked like. There's all sorts of a lot of fragments of my memory. I knew the whole time that something serious had happened. And when I got to hospital, the only time that I didn't remember was they gave me a drug while they were kind of putting my bones back into place. We won't go too much into detail there. But when I got told that the the only remaining option was to have my leg amputated, I was fully conscious, fully aware, obviously drugged up. So, you know, kind of slightly all over the place. But I, I remember that news hitting me and kind of sinking in. And I have a really, really clear image of being wheeled down to the anaesthetic room and seeing my right foot for the last time. And seeing that the, the the toenails were painted red, I'd done that because I was going on a date and I'd kind of, well, that day I was kind of prepping and getting myself ready to go on a first date. Just, you know, the normal sort of 25-year-old single life. So I really, I really remember that image and I think that's definitely going to stay with me for a long time. In the book, in the prologue of the book, you explained there's a situation when you, when you fell over, when you were jogging, there was a guy there who basically sort of abandoned you. Can you tell us a bit more about that? When I fell, my sister and I didn't bring our phones with us because we thought, oh, we're just going out for a quick 20-minute jog. We, you know, just put your keys down your sports bra sort of thing. So we had to wait for someone to come along who could call an ambulance. Now, we were on a canal path in 
the middle of East London, nowhere. It was it was a bank holiday. It was a Sunday morning, quite early, no one around. So I was kind of lying there and we had to wait for someone to come along. And eventually, I can't really say exactly how much later, but a man came and he called the ambulance and he then hung up and said, I'm really sorry, I've got to go. I've got a train to catch. And I think none of us really realised how serious the situation was. However, I was clearly in a lot of pain. So for him to kind of leave us there was quite shocking, really. And I often wonder now, as I'm promoting the book, whether he has heard any of these appearances. So he left, and then we had to wait for someone else to come along. And thankfully, the girl that appeared next did actually stay with us and flag down the ambulance from the main road so they knew where to find us what happened with the dislocations it's cut off the blood flow to your foot had the ambulance turned up quicker would the outcome have been the same so this is something i've thought about a lot actually and something i've almost had to force myself to stop thinking about you sort of can't dwell on the the what ifs but i have also spoken to medical professionals about it because you know at one stage i thought well is this a medical negligence thing but it wasn't. So when the blood supply is cut off like that, it happens virtually instantly. It's a matter of minutes. So whether the ambulance had come in 10 minutes or, you know, half an hour, it's very likely the outcome would have been the same. But yeah, I, I sort of try not to dwell on it too much just because obviously from the kind of psychological recovery point of view, it's it's almost not worth thinking about now. And, you know, my life hasn't really changed that much in the grand scheme of things. Of course, there were, you know, there was a period of about six months where it was really awful and I I kind of couldn't quite believe that it had happened, went through all the different stages of grief. And now I'm at the other end. It feels like just this kind of blip. It feels like a blur. And now, really, when I think about it, there's not actually anything I can't do. Ultimately, it hasn't affected me. And I got a book deal, so... You you said in the prologue as well that you, as you sort of just described, you went for a period that was quite dark for a while and I don't want to dwell on it because you've just said you don't want to dwell on it. <laughs> but did you feel anger towards the man that left you? Did you, because I, when I read that, I felt anger towards the man that left you. Did yeah. it take a long time to sort of come through that? Yeah, it did. It was definitely a process. Yeah, a lot of anger and just confusion as well, kind of putting myself in the other person's shoes and thinking actually what would I have done and it makes you reflect on now you know especially in London it's so busy everyone's really very much in their own heads living their own lives and when something happens that changes the course of your day you have that choice you can either stay and you know do something about it or you can kind of pretend it doesn't happen you know you see homeless people and people looking away and I think we've all been sort of guilty of that you know, especially in big cities. And it has definitely changed my perception of things like that now. If someone faints on the tube, for example, rather than kind of ignore them, I will sort of offer water or... It's definitely altered my outlook on life in that way. You've come through this, it's changed your perspective quite a lot, but what about the sort of practicalities of it? And what about what about people? So when I met you, I met you at a press event a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And obviously I had no idea that you're an amputee because you know you're wearing long trousers or whatever there would there just be no way of me having known that until you actually said to me I'm sorry I have to sit down because I'm an amputee and that's quite interesting so obviously a lot of people will not 
even ever know that this has happened to you people who you sort of meet randomly in passing is that a blessing or is that a bit of a curse sometimes it varies i think it depends what i'm doing where i am and also what i'm wearing to an extent i like it when obviously like it when people treat me as you would anyone because ultimately i don't see myself as disabled and i think a lot of disabled people would say this it's a funny word disabled and it makes me think actually when i was in hospital my surgeon I vividly remember him saying to me, you're not disabled, you're temporarily incapacitated, which I quite liked. And it's kind of the way I I choose to view it. So there are times where people, particularly when I was in a wheelchair, I spent four months in a wheelchair when I was recovering and people do treat you differently. There's a kind of look, I, I don't know if it's because you're physically lower down than, than people who are standing, but there is a kind of sometimes slightly patronising look in people's eyes. And they're not necessarily doing it deliberately or maliciously, but that does, that does happen. It happens less with the prosthetic leg, and I don't know really why that is. Obviously, I'll catch people staring, for example, if I'm sitting on a bus quite often, or if I get into a taxi, a taxi driver will inevitably ask me what happened, almost as, you know, as, it, as casually as if you're talking about the weather. Like, they kind of, it's this huge thing in my life, but they sort of think, oh, I can just ask her about that, no problem. Does and not Not really, actually. Mm-hmm. It used to at the beginning. At the beginning, it really, really did. And I think I was very self-conscious. And now the prosthetic leg that I wear most of the time is very obviously a prosthetic leg. But I do have one that looks realistic and has kind of silicon, like skin, sort of skin silicon on it. So when I wear that one, you wouldn't know. And I do sometimes hide behind that. So for example, when I started going on dates again after the amputation, I would wear that realistic leg because... I didn't want it to define me and I didn't want people to sort of only focus on that when I was trying to get to know somebody. You know, the minute you kind of bring up the accident story, then that's all you talk about. And then I find, I leave the date not knowing anything about the other person. So it depends very much on the circumstance, I think. Going back to that dating thing, because I guess like we all have things in our lives that we maybe don't really, you know, quite heavy things that we don't necessarily want to talk about on a first date or to someone we've just met. And obviously for most people, those things will be hidden things. So, you know, you don't have to mention those things, but if someone does obviously clock that you've got a prosthetic limb and that comes up and you're talking about it, what kind of reaction did you get in that sort of situation? You know, I guess you're dating like fairly young men Yeah, it was difficult, especially with online dating, because you think, do I put that in the profile? Do I, at what point do I tell this person that I'm messaging, oh, by the way, because it's, you know, it's not something that comes up in conversation very easily. So I tried a, a variety of different approaches with that, where there were points where I had it on my kind of online profile, but then I thought, actually, no, it's not that important in terms of who I am as a person. So then I took it off. I had times where I would just sort of casually bring it into a conversation, well, in as casual a way as you can. And very often I did have people that stopped speaking to me. It's horrible to to say, but it, it was true. Equally, there were people who were slightly too fascinated. Yeah, just slight, slightly odd um, in some of the questions. And, you know, straight away, do you keep it on when you have sex? 
Well, Ooh. that's, you know, uh, that is really quite a personal thing to ask someone yeah. you have never met before. Answer, doesn't really matter. Just FYI. And, you know, there was one guy where I met, actually a couple of guys I met, and I wore the realistic leg and didn't mention it. And whilst they had no idea, I did feel a little bit like I wasn't being true to myself. It did feel like the elephant in the room where this, you know, I've got this thing on the end of my leg and I get up to go to the loo and I think, oh, if I limp a bit, like, they're going to think I've injured myself. And all it takes is for someone to say, oh, have you hurt your leg? And you kind of then, it brings it up and you have to be like, well, sort of, kind of, yeah. Yeah, it was a minefield. (laughs) It really was quite, it was quite tough at times. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. I guess that's quite scary in a way for people to think about shit, something can just happen to you. And I guess you can extrapolate that and think about all sorts of terrible things that could happen in life. Did you ever have people who have actually sort of distanced themselves or even been a bit mean? Yeah, for sure. There were an interesting array of reactions, I have to say. Sometimes from people I didn't necessarily expect. So, you know, people who've known me for years and years, kind of family, friends and things like that, just weren't able to contact me and I had people say months and months afterwards I'm sorry I didn't contact you I didn't know what to say and I think that's that's similar you know with with bereavement as well when people say oh I didn't know what to say so I didn't say anything so I did have quite a lot of that I also had a family friend when I was in a wheelchair who came to visit my parents house where I was staying and she just came up to me and squidged my cheeks and said, no, I'm so proud of you, like that. And I thought, wow, wow, why? First, for a start, tripping over my own feet. But also, it was just, it was, it was purely because she didn't know what to say. And the pain, maybe the shock of seeing someone who she'd known since they were a child in a wheelchair with this huge bandage, you know, you kind of, it must be a really difficult thing to deal with. But then, yeah, equally, I had people who were brilliant, people, again, who weren't necessarily the people I expected, not even my sort of close friends, people I hadn't seen for years, would write me letters. And so it, it was a real vast range of reactions. It was really, really interesting to see how different people cope with it, because, it is something, I, I mean, I'm not sure, pre-accident, I don't know how I would have reacted if this had happened to one of my friends. I'd like to think I would have sort of rushed to their aid, but actually I don't, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say. And it, even now people say to me that they struggled. And when they read the book, some people have said they found the first few chapters a really difficult read because they couldn't help but imagine me, even though I did, tried to distance myself from the main character. So I think... It's maybe sometimes harder for the people around you than it is for the patient. You know, I was in the hospital bed, I was drugged up, I was being looked after every minute of every day. But actually the people around me, it kind of ripples. So not just among my immediate family and friends, but among anyone who really had ever met me. It's, it's, it really does have far-reaching impact, I think. Yeah. Obviously, having gone through this and come out the other side, what have you noticed if anything, 
about the way society treats people who are temporarily incapacitated (laughs) and also about the way, you know, just in practical terms, the world is set up for people who are not, for want of better words, able-bodied. It really has opened my eyes. I think really small things, actually. It's the small day-to-day things that have the most impact. So things like curbs, you know, if there's not a dropped curb, it is impossible if you are in a wheelchair to tip yourself backwards and get yourself up onto that curb without help. Really, really small things like that. You know, stairs, obviously, that's that's an obvious one. Again, mentioning London, but public transport, particularly the tube, is really, really difficult. And I think just generally the kind of attitudes people have like for example in supermarkets you can go to a cashier and you're in a wheelchair and that cashier is really high above you you can't necessarily see over the counter it's all the sort of practical things that people take for granted that I now realize can actually be big problems especially if it's something you're facing every day you know the other week I was speaking to a girl in a wheelchair who was telling me about her journey to... She doesn't live in London. She was telling me about her journey there and how even getting on a train, you have to sort of get the guard to get the ramp to help you get off onto the train. There should be somebody meeting, like meeting you the other end, but often they haven't turned up and you sort of get forgotten about. And really, it is it is awful. Um, I've had experiences when I fly, actually, airports can be particularly traumatic because obviously I am able to walk but sometimes if I have uh, a blister on my stump and that can render me wheelchair bound for for a time while it heals and there have been times where I've had to be wheeled through the airport and I've been approached by people who staff who've kind of implied that I'm not disabled enough to have priority access for example because in theory I can walk even if I'm in huge amounts of pain so attitudes probably do need to change in some ways I'm but obviously I don't want to generalize too much and this is this is not everyone but there yeah the world is a difficult place for people who are not able-bodied for sure so what would you say to I guess members of the general public aka listener people will be making assumptions all the time about other people whether they're able-bodied or or temporarily incapacitated or or whatever and the way we as society treat people i guess it can be difficult sometimes if people don't know mm-hmm. that you have a prosthetic leg yeah for example maybe people get a bit like you know nudgy or whatever on the tube things like that yeah definitely I think because I'm young as well not to be ageist but people just assume oh she's young and fit and I am young and fit but I also have a prosthetic leg so yes luckily I am quite naturally confident and I'm happy to say oi get up I need to sit down or you know probably politer than that but I am happy to do that but I'm aware that there are people who find that really difficult I mean there are things out there you know if we if we're talking London there are badges you can wear that say please offer me a seat there's things like that but I think the main thing really is about treating people as individuals and not seeing not seeing that whether it's a wheelchair or you know disability in general it's it's more about keeping that open mind and just seeing the person and not their disability and you know when we're talking about hidden disabilities 
my prosthetic leg is hidden to an extent, but I can roll my trousers up and point at it if I need to in an airport, for example. But there are people, you know, perhaps people with colostomy bags, or there are so many invisible disabilities. And it is really, it's great to see signs now outside disabled toilets that say not all disabilities are visible, because it must be really difficult for those people if, you know, getting looks and thinking you hear about people who kind of come out of a disabled toilet and start limping they might have a disability but they kind of just it's like a thing where they think oh actually just I need to almost prove that I am disabled it's a tough thing but I think it's just kind of important that we talk to people as people and try not to focus on the actual the disability and also I think just asking them sometimes not being afraid to ask them what their needs are obviously without being too sort of prying and personal but I think a lot of it comes down to a lack of understanding and if you understand what that person's needs are then it's going to be a lot easier to cater to that and to to help them really. So I guess the the point is could a lot of this be avoided if people were just in general regardless of of who they're talking to and who they're dealing with in a public space just be a bit less of a dick (laughs) yeah i think that's a fair point i think so just to try and get out of your own head a bit and recognize just open your eyes and recognize the people around you really i reckon i reckon you're right there (laughs) you may be in a rush but just just don't make it everyone else's problem maybe So you do a bit of work, you're an ambassador for a few charities. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Of course, yeah. Raising awareness is one of the things that I'm really, really passionate about now and just sort of getting the message out there that everyone's equal and disability awareness and that kind of thing. So since my accident, I've been involved with two charities. One of them is the Limbless Association, so supporting people with limb loss. And the other one is the Bart's Health Trauma Charity. One thing that really struck me, actually, is that trauma is the biggest cause of death for people under 40 in the UK. But actually, less than 1% of healthcare research funding is spent on trauma research. So it's quite staggering, really. And so the Bart's Health Charity have this campaign called Transform Trauma, which is an ongoing campaign about raising that awareness and just raising money as well to support people who are trauma victims. And trauma is such a broad thing. It could be a car accident. It could be tripping over while out jogging. It could be a brain injury. It could be, it's, it can be physical. It can be psychological. So it is a huge, huge thing and I mean on their website there are so many different case studies of of people who've experienced trauma in different ways you know it's Martine Wright who lost both her legs in the London bombings there's Professor Green he's the ambassador he was in the hospital twice once because he was in a car accident and another time he got like knifed in the neck with a a broken bottle yeah that's all trauma so I think it's it's one of those things that people don't really talk about that much it's not heard of in a way in the way that other sort of healthcare campaigns are spoken about so that's something that I'm really passionate about and the team have developed an app which is really good it's called after trauma and it's 
specifically designed for people who experience trauma, but also their loved ones as well. So there's a section on it for carers. There's a forum and it's it's a really interactive app and it's all about kind of what to expect when you go into hospital and, you know, advice on specific conditions. And then, as I mentioned, the carer section too. So they're doing all kinds of things and, they're, yeah, they're just a really fab charity to be involved with. Your book, Five Steps to Happy, yes. is available now. I assume at all good bookshops and indeed online. Are you doing any sort of work around it? Are you out there promoting it? Are you doing talks and things like that that people can come and see? I am available for <laughs> anything anyone would like to throw at me. There's a few things planned for next year. There's nothing nothing planned this side of Christmas. I did, did do a few things. I spoke at the Henley Literary Festival, which was really fun. I've done various kind of radio and magazine things. As a journalist, I'm obviously trying to push myself out there as much as physically possible. People are going to get bored of this one-leg story soon, I reckon. (laughs) So, yeah, I've got a few things coming up, but, I mean, the best thing to do, if anyone's interested, is to follow me on social media, and then I can just annoy everyone with my upcoming events you can do that at ella rose dove on twitter and also on instagram ella thanks so much thank you very much hello hannah here just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do you can help us by rating and reviewing us on itunes it really does help especially if you give us five stars did that sound threatening enough give us five stars Standard issue for all women.